I was um, in a very physically abusive marriage for seven and a half years. I woke up in the middle of the night. He had slapped me or punched me in my face while I was asleep. And I was scared. I was terrified because he was drunk. My sister had taken my daughter out of the room and taken her to the car. I finally had an opportunity where my ex-husband had walked, I don't know where he went, and I went to grab my son and he popped back up and, and he yanked him out of my arms and had him pinned down on the bed. He kept telling me, like, see what you made me do. It's your fault that I did this because of you. And I just remember seeing my son crying, you know, he and just laying there screaming. And so I just reached for the phone and called 911. In the past, I never did. Um, I never would call the police, um, but this one was, I didn't hesitate. It's one thing to hit me, but you're not going to hurt my kids. They're on their way, but I'm going to keep you on the line until they get there, okay? She could hear him talking to me and yelling at me, and she just kept telling me, stay with me, don't hang up, you know, because he kept saying, just hang up, I'll, I'll put him down, and I'll leave you alone. Um, I knew in my head that even if I did hang up, that wouldn't have been the case. Well, the police are on the way, okay? He put my son down. And, and gave him to me and he walked outside. So when they got there, they were able to get him right away. I felt just like let down and shut off to God and church in general. I just, I was like, if there's a God, he's definitely not here. Starting all over again was just super scary. My best friend, he works for Round Rock PD, and so I would ride out with him. And I remember going to a couple calls with him and telling myself, I could do this. I know I can't save everybody, but I felt like I had something in me to give resources to somebody. I at least help somebody somewhere. I went to a, a job fair and for the, that the sheriff's office held. I remember talking to um, one of the lieutenants. I'm talking to her before I know it, I filled out an application. But I started working at the jail first um, while I waited to get accepted into the Basic Peace Officer Academy. And I was working full time in the jail, the midnight shift. And then I was going to class from 4 p.m. I think to 10 p.m. And then I would go straight into work overnight. My mom's a teacher, so I had the kids enrolled at her school so that she can take them to school in the morning and have them after school. I really didn't see my kids much because even on my days off, I was in school. It was challenging, it was mentally exhausting, but it was definitely worth it. One of my biggest and proudest achievements was having both my kids pin my badge on me. I just felt free. It was a great feeling, a peaceful feeling. I met Henry working in the jail we both worked overnight shift. It took a couple years before I fully opened up to him. The first thing I let him know was I have two kids and I wasn't looking for anything, I didn't want anything, and I didn't need anything. And I was very closed up. I had I had walls all around me. But as we started like, you know, meeting each other, we started with little things, you know, going to coffee here and there. Um, but I just had so many walls and he was so patient. Um, Part of my theme for our wedding was love is patient, love is kind, because Henry is my true meaning of love is patient. Um, I told him from the get-go, don't ask me to marry you. I won't marry you. I'll never get married again. So don't even think about it. <laughs> we got married. I told him, don't, I'm not having kids. Don't ask me to have a kid with you. I'm, I have two kids already. I don't, I don't need any more kids. I don't want any more kids. We have a kid, and we had an eight-year-old. We have a now eight-year-old. And so now he jokes to me, he's like, oh, I, I got a kid, I got you to marry me. I just remember waking up one day and was like, oh my God, I love this man.
I remember getting the call that Henry was on his way to the hospital. Henry was just working a call and he um, gotten kicked in his head. He ended up having a severe TBI. He has some spinal damage in his neck and his back. I was still going to work and then coming home and taking care of Henry and the kids and it was hard, it was super hard. But I didn't share that with anybody and I didn't share it with him because I knew he was already stressing out that I had so much on my plate and then he was injured. So I was just like, I'm okay. And I just, you know, had to tough it up and keep going. As a police officer, we see a lot of things, um, a lot of traumatic things. Early on in my career, I had a call, um, and it was a domestic violence situation, and the lady had been assaulted pretty bad by her husband. And I remember getting to the house, and I see her, and her hair's just drenched in blood. She kept telling me to check on her son. I was by myself, so I went into the house, and as I'm getting to a, into the living room, there's a crack in one door, and I see little eyes looking at me, um, and then this little boy runs out, and he comes and gives me a hug. And in that instant, I saw my son. And it really affected me. I ended up going, realizing like, okay, I need, I need therapy. You know, I'd never dealt, really fully dealt with all my stuff with my ex-husband and the domestic abuse, domestic violence, the stuff with my kids, taking care of them, trying to get them into, you know, good, happy, healthy home, showing them a good marriage, Henry getting assaulted. You know, I was, in, I was worried about my husband. And through all that, I learned that I really needed to take care of myself because without taking care of me, I was no good to anybody else but I just felt like something was missing. I've been working on Sundays at Lake Hills since like 2010. My job was to provide security and I never paid attention to any of the services or what Mac was saying. And I started taking interest in like worship. And I remember Roger played, uh, saying how great they are at one time and it I got goosebumps. And I noticed that it made me feel, I felt good. I felt peaceful when I was listening to worship music. Then I started noticing I was paying attention to Mac. I was really engaged in it. And I looked forward to going to church on Sundays. And then I realized this is what I was missing. I felt at home. I, re I truly did. And as I was listening to some of Mac's um, services, some of them were hitting home to me. God has, has been here for me this whole time. Henry was brought to me for a reason. Hayden was brought to me for a reason. God gave me all these gifts. And Julie would talk about Fearless Mom, and I hear her say stuff about Fearless Mom. And so I signed up and I joined the Fearless Mom group. And at first I was intimidated because I just barely started like opening a Bible. And I don't, I'm not gonna know what they're talking about because I don't understand the Bible. But I wanna know it, I wanna learn how to read it. I wanna get into Bible studies but I felt like I was just gonna be out of place and I was a little bit embarrassed. Uh, but then once I got there and realized like, we're all at different places and walks in our life with God and there was no judgment. Everybody in our group I felt was so understanding and compassionate. And so it inspired me to continue with it and to now open up to more things with the church. Just open my heart more to, to God. Later on in that year, I had a stroke all these years of stress and bottling everything up, and I'm just at the point where I'm, you know, talking about it, going therapy, getting into church. I reached out to Deanne. She had checked in on me one day, and I reached out to her, and I let her know 
what was going on. She asked if she could share it and, and pray on, you know, with their prayer group, and I said yes. So then later I talked to Deborah, and I shared it with her as well, and she was constantly checking on me, and she was praying for me. They were praying in their prayer group, and I, right there, I realized even more, like, how connected everybody is at church and how united everybody is, and I just felt their love. The people are what make our church our church. I started doing, uh, working uh, when it was Wednesdays, the youth services, um, and I was building connections with the kids and with um, Kaylee and Jordan and Joe, and Joe's become somebody super dear to me in my heart. We've just developed this awesome friendship. He just pushes me and helps me be a better person. And so I started talking to him about being, about baptism, and he asked me if I was ready, and I told him I was. And so I asked Joe if I did get baptized, if he was, be, if he was willing to, baptize me. I feel like I can never describe what it felt like coming out of the water. I felt like just this weight was lifted off of my shoulders. I felt like I had put my heart, my soul, my life, everything back into God's hands. As we mark 25 years as a church family, we're telling these stories of people. It's about people and Jesus. That's what it has always been about. That's what it will always be about. And I'm just so, so grateful to Officer Peters, Erica, for sharing her story, as I am to the others who have shared their stories so far through this series. And the undeniable, irrefutable lesson of 25 years is the goodness of God. It's just how completely faithful and completely good God is. And so that's why we're telling these stories because it, it's, it's the story of God. It, it's, it's why we are still here. You know, when you come to faith in Christ, you, it, it, it was an option for God to immediately beam us home to heaven, you know? Just, just beam me up. Not Scotty, but Lord. But for some reason, in his infinite wisdom and grace, he chooses to leave us here to do his work, to collaborate with him. And so that's our job. I mean, all of us. Look at your neighbor and tell him, it's your job. Now turn to your other neighbor, who's your second choice, <laughs> and tell that person, do your job. <laughs> that's, that's the gig, ladies and gentlemen. If you're a follower of Christ, you're not here to go to church every Sunday. That's a good thing to do, by the way. But you're here to tell other people people, he's good. You are here. You are drawing breath for the purposes of God. And he's good. He is good. He is good. He is good. So that's why we're, 
this, this month, we're, we're studying, we're examining, we're plumbing the depths of the goodness of God. But you know, no examination of the goodness of God would be complete without looking at the goodness of God even when things go bad. Look at just Erica's story that we just saw right there. I mean, she's been through it, hasn't she? An abusive husband, a, an assaulted, injured husband, single mom, sheriff's deputy, a stroke. I, I would have tapped out. I'd have been like, take care, y'all. But she just keeps going in the goodness of God. And so... We have, to, we have to be able to, to get at this. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, the, the more people I meet and, and really talk to, people who genuinely let you into their lives, see if this isn't true for you. The more people that I know, the more convinced I am that everybody, everybody has some part of their story that is really heavy. You know, I mean... People that I know who have lived more than about 25 minutes have been through some stuff. And I don't think it's some people. I, I kind of think it's everybody. And, and you, I, I don't know if that resonates with you or if that's been your experience of people you talk to or your own personal experience. But I think we've got to own that. And, and it's amazing to me how quickly in Christ, we can toggle back and forth between the good and the bad, the, the highs and the lows, the celebrations and the mornings, and both are real. But in Christ, we have, we have this unique opportunity, and that, that's what we want to get at today. I, I think it's important to understand, as we look at the goodness of God, God is so good that even when things go bad, he uses them for good. God is so good that even when things go bad, he uses them for good. This is a, this is a, a theme of scripture from Genesis through Revelation. But in Romans chapter 8, there, there's really a master class given on how this happens and, and what God does and I think it's very important as we begin to look at this master class that we understand God doesn't cause bad things to happen. Now, there are times when he will bring discipline into our lives. He says, I'm a loving father, and a loving father disciplines children whom he loves. But everything that happens is not God's fault. So sometimes it's the fault of our own. Sometimes it's the fault of other people. Sometimes it's just the fact that we live in a fallen, faulted world. I remember when our daughter Emily got her driver's license. She was 16, <clears throat> and she had had her license for about eight minutes when she had her first fender bender. <laughs> I got a call at home. Dad, I'm fine. Nobody's hurt, but I had a wreck. I'm at the high school. The sheriff is on his way. I said, great. The dad is on his way, too. Well, <clears throat> I found out later that 
Emily had tried to pull out of a parking lot as another car was trying to get around a line of traffic and that other car had hit her bumper and it just kind of, it was like somebody just knocked the jaw off of her car. You know what I mean? It's like one of those rock'em sock'em robot moments. And her front fender was literally hanging in the street while the rest of her car was over here. And she told me later that when the sheriff got there, he was explaining to her that he wasn't going to ticket her, but for purposes of insurance, he was going to have to say that she was at fault. And then he said to her, now that's going to really irritate your parents because their insurance is going to go up. And Emily looked back at the sheriff and very respectfully said, you don't know my parents. I'm paying the increase in insurance. <laughs> you see, Julie and I were committed to helping our children learn cause and effect. And Emily paid every dime of that insurance increase. Now, I can promise you, in that moment, Emily didn't fully appreciate the lesson she was learning. <laughs> I, I promise you, to this day, she probably thinks it was kind of ridiculous, but she gets it sort of. Sometimes God lets us go through things for reasons that we don't understand in the moment, but they are absolutely for his glory and our good. To understand the goodness of God, we have to understand that the goodness of God never, say never, never, never wavers. The goodness of God is never taking a coffee break. The goodness of God is never on sabbatical. And to, to really understand this, we're going to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to do something that I shouldn't do, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to begin at the end. We're going to start with the punchline and then go back and look at how God does this and what God is doing. In Romans 8, 28, the Bible says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. God causes everything. That doesn't mean that God causes everything. But he does cause everything to work together for good. It is true that God is sovereign. His authority is absolute and complete. There is no power, no authority higher than God's. So everything that happens, happens under the umbrella of his authority. But in Christ, everything that happens in our lives God uses for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What one theologian said, this fact is so inherent in the character of God that if you were to change the circumstances of your life, you would make it worse than God is making the bad stuff good. I love that thought. I had to think about it and read it a few times, but I love it. That's how God operates John Stott was a British theologian, a minister of the gospel, and really one of the leading voices for sound biblical theology of the 20th century. As a matter of fact, Time Magazine named him one of the most 100 influential people of the 20th century. So that, that's, that's the kind of mind we're talking about. This is what Stott says about suffering and struggle. He says, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. But then he goes on to say this, it needs to be said at once that the Bible supplies no thorough solution to the problem of evil. 
Consequently, although there are references to sin and suffering on virtually every page, its concern, the Bible's, is not to explain their origin, but to help us to overcome them. Now, that may sound a little surprising at first that a Christian theologian would say, the Bible doesn't tell us why evil is there. It just tells us that it's there, and now here's how you overcome it. But that actually makes a lot of sense. I want you to follow this with me for a second. Think about the hardest thing you've ever been through in your life. Maybe something you're walking through right now. If you could write the script and come up with a reason why this struggle, this challenge, this suffering is going on, and it was a valid reason, even if you wrote the reason in the moment of your suffering, you wouldn't buy it. There's no philosophical, there's no theological answer that can satisfy, it, satisfy us when it's personal. When it's personal, we just know we hurt. We just know we want it to quit. And that's what Stott is saying so biblically and so beautifully. Scripture, God gives us the ability, the power to overcome suffering. The apostle Paul himself, the Bible says he was given a thorn in the flesh. He asked God on three different occasions to remove it from him. And God said, no, my grace will be sufficient for you. My grace. How many millions of people down through the years, in the 2,000 years since Paul told us that reality of his life, has that comforted? Has God used that in my life, in your life, to say, you know what? If Paul could get through this, the grace of God is sufficient for me to get through this. The goodness of God never, ever wavers. Look at Romans chapter 8, going back to verses 15 and 17. This is kind of the, the setup to the punchline. God causes all things to work together for good. The Bible says, now you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, we call him Abba. Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So, in Christ, the relationship that our sin ruptured is repaired eternally. We are restored. We are redeemed back into a right relationship with God. And so we become heirs with Christ. We, we inherit the glory of God. Here's the beautiful thing about an inheritance. You can't do anything to get it. You, you, just, you just were in the lucky birth club. And nobody deserves an inheritance, by the way. I hope you understand that. You know, if, you're, if your mom and dad are loaded, I mean squillionaires, and they leave you a huge inheritance, man, that's, that's great. That is good news. Yay for you. Let's go to dinner. It's on you. But you don't deserve that. It's fascinating to me how many times I have seen families arguing and get embittered over the will or the estate of a dearly departed wealthy patriarch. 
as if they deserve some of that inheritance. Once your parents feed you and get you out of the house, they're off the clock. If they leave you a dollar, it's a blessing. We inherit the glory of God because of what Christ did on the cross and the resurrection. That's, that's the reality of our situation. But if we're going to inherit the glory of God, Paul says we're also going to share in the suffering. And no one suffered more than Jesus Christ. No one. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care where you've been. I don't care where I've been. Please understand, none of us has suffered like Jesus suffered. And, and the physical suffering he endured on the cross pales in comparison to the spiritual and relational suffering. Isn't it true that the greatest pain we can know in this world is relational? It's not, it's not physical. That, that can be really bad. I, I get it. But to, to lose a relationship that you had, and there's never been a relationship like God the Son with God the Father. They experienced complete unity and intimacy with the Spirit of God, the Trinity, the Godhead. And yet when Jesus went to the cross and became my sin and became your sin, because God remained holy in heaven, that relationship was ruptured. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that relationship was broken and he had done nothing wrong. Think about that for a second. Any relationship that I've ever lost, I know I played a part in it. I, I had something to do with it. Jesus had done nothing wrong and yet he was separated from God the Father, the greatest pain the world has ever known. And so Paul's saying, if we're going to share in the glory and the good stuff, we're also going to share in the suffering. But then he moves on and he, he expresses and explains purpose and perspective. Look at what he says in verse 18. He goes, now, what we suffer now is nothing. Say nothing. Nothing, nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all of creation was subjected to God's curse because of sin. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And isn't that the truth? I mean, it, it can be a really hard world that we live in. Paul's saying that's part of the results of Genesis chapter 3. The, the injection of sin into the human condition made everything harder, made everything tougher. All of creation is groaning as in the pangs of childbirth. I remember when Julie was pregnant with Joe, our second born. I'll remember this so vividly. It was, so, it was actually really funny, although I couldn't laugh in the moment. <laughs> Julie got to about month six or seven, and, you know, month six or seven, that's, that's when it's kind of like, okay, <laughs> let's get this show on the road. And, and, she, and I remember Julie would, would sit down or she would stand up, and she'd be like, I just, just don't remember being this uncomfortable with Emily. It just wasn't, 
it was just so much easier the last time. And I was like, oh, honey, honey. No, it wasn't. No. No, it, 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 was, it was really hard. And I know for you, too. But what had happened? Julie had gone through childbirth. She had delivered Emily into the world. We had, we had watched Emily grow and develop for two years. She forgot the pregnancy. She forgot how hard it was. If you remembered, nobody would ever kiss anybody goodnight ever again. <laughs> but sure enough, about a year and a half after Emily was born, she was like, I think we should try for a second one. I was like, I'm, I'm into trying. Let's try. <laughs> Here comes Joe. But, but Julie had forgotten because the birth of a child gives you perspective on pain. The payoff becomes worth the pain. When we remember what God has in store for us, what he's called us to, the, the, the fact that we will spend eternity with him, the fact that we will, at one moment, we will know as we are known. Right now, we see through a glass dimly. We, we, we only understand so much in our finite minds of our infinite God, but man, there's coming a day. And when we, when we understand the sweep of eternity, the scope of history and what God is up to, that, that perspective allows us to, to endure and to persevere. And so I'm gonna do something that I've never done before. I'm gonna give you a list. This is, this is a list of what to look for when you suffer. It's not exhaustive or complete because God's gonna do things that, that I couldn't dream up or imagine, but this is a list to begin when you struggle, when you hurt, when you suffer. When you ask the question, where's God? Or you ask the question, well, what good is this? If God causes all things to work together for good, what good is this? Anybody ever been there before? Have you ever wondered, why in the world is this happening to me? Has anybody ever wondered that? I'm just, thank you, okay. This is a list, and I'm gonna rip through this list very, very quickly. I'm gonna put it on the screen. You can take a picture of it at the end. But I'm gonna give you a list of 17 things. We'll be done in about 45 minutes. 17, you ready? Here we go. What good is this? Number one, suffering will grow us in Christ-likeness. Suffering grows us in Christ-likeness. Remember, Jesus suffered. When we suffer, we have the opportunity to become more like him. Number two, suffering will teach us God's faithfulness. Teach us God's faithfulness. When you suffer, when you struggle and you walk through it and you remember, you realize God didn't leave me hanging. He has stayed with me the entire way. You know, it's one thing when you walk into to, to somebody's restroom at their home and, and you see the poem above the toilet that says footprints. You know what I'm talking about? Footprints. I saw two pair of footprints walking along the beach. And then I saw one pair and I realized that God had been carrying me the whole way. It's a really cheesy poem. Don't put it above a toilet. But the point is, <laughs> it's great theology. 
That's when God carries us. God won't, God won't give me more than, he can stand, more than I can stand. Yes, he will. That's when you go to your knees and you ask him to carry you. Number three, it'll grow our faith. It grows our faith. When we experience the faithfulness of God, our faith expands and grows. Number four, it'll strengthen our character. And I, I, can I be honest, this one I don't like. Because can I tell you how many times I have told God I'm strong enough? <laughs> and in his goodness, he lets me struggle. It, it's, it's the same principle as when you go to the gym. When I go to the gym and I bench press 350 pounds five times, <laughs> what's happening is the fibers in my massive pectoral major muscles are being broken down, but they come back stronger than before. The same thing is what happens spiritually when we struggle and when we suffer. Number five, sometimes suffering will reveal the reality of sin. Maybe your sin, maybe somebody else's sin, but it helps us to understand the gravity and the significance of sin and brokenness. It's not, oops, I made a mistake. It is rebellion against God. That's what sin is, and sometimes suffering reveals that. Number six, sometimes suffering will lead us to repentance. S suffering strips away all of the pretense. When you struggle, when you hurt, man, that, that's, that's when you're, you're that's, that's raw, that's real. And sometimes it exposes areas that we need to repent of and come back to God from. Number seven, it will deepen our commitment. It deepens our commitment when we suffer. Part of what Jill and I enjoy after 31 years of marriage is that we're at 31 years having been through some stuff, having walked through. We've, we've struggled together through some things. And, and man, that, that's hard-won ground in a marriage. You don't want to give that up. Spiritually, when I struggle with God, when I wrestle with God, and, and I come through on the other side and I realize where I needed to grow and where God was faithful, that's hard-won ground. I'm going to hang on to that and not give it up. It deepens our commitment. Number eight, struggle and suffering teaches us the power of grace. It'll teach us the power of grace. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Number nine, suffering unites us with each other. It's one of the things that binds us together as human beings. You hurt, I hurt. You struggle, I struggle. Number 10, as it unites us, it also develops empathy. Develops empathy in us. It helps us to look at the world through other people's eyes and not just me, myself, and I. Number 11, it'll discipline our minds. Suffering causes you to think clearly, to make sure that you're clinging to truth and not just empty aphorisms of the world and the culture. Discipline our minds. Number 12, it'll teach us wisdom. It teaches us wisdom. What wisdom I have at 55 years old has largely come through suffering, through struggle and hurt. Number 13, it'll grow our hope. It grows our hope. Number 14, it teaches us to love Christ more. 
when I suffer, I realize the fact is I'm suffering a sliver, a fraction of what Jesus suffered for me. And I love him more for it. Number 15, it'll reveal the power of truth. It reveals the power of truth. Number 16, develops perseverance. Develops perseverance. And then number 17, it reveals the heart of the Father. When I suffer and I go to God, the Bible tells me that he is the God of all comfort. And so when I hurt, when I struggle, when I suffer, I go to him and I tell him, God, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of gas. I need you. Abba, Father, shows up. Abba. Abba. That, that word doesn't really have a good English correlation because Abba, Father, carries with it the connotation of the deepest, most profound respect for a father that a child can have, while also communicating complete intimacy, complete trust. Horatio Spafford was a Chicago attorney and entrepreneur and businessman of the late 1800s. He and his wife Anna had five children, he was a very well-to-do attorney in Chicago. But in 1871, they lost one of their sons to pneumonia. As they were recovering through the grief of that loss, the great Chicago fire of 1871 took place and they lost multiple properties. Their finances were devastated. But they soldiered on, they kept going, and. Two years later, as they were recovering from both of these losses, they decided to take a family vacation to Europe. Horatio had business that he needed to attend to, so Anna and the children set sail for Europe, and he was to join them later. As they were making their way across the Atlantic, long before the advent of radar or sonar or anything like that, their ship collided with another ship. It sank in about 12 minutes. All of the Spafford children perished, but Anna was rescued. She was rescued and made her way to Wales. And there she telegraphed her husband. Her telegraph began very simply, saved alone. What shall I do? Spafford immediately got on the next ship for England, made his way to Europe, and as they were crossing the Atlantic, the captain of his ship, knowing the tragedy that had befallen his family, went to Horatio Spafford and he said, I just thought you would want to know we're pretty much over the spot where your family's ship went down and your children were lost. I just wanted you to know that. And it was at that moment that Horatio went back to his cabin and he wrote the following words. 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul.
bow your heads for just a moment. The way to be able to say and mean it is well with my soul. person of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you have never stepped into a relationship with God, you've never confessed your sins, received forgiveness and amazing grace, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. To step into a relationship with the one who makes it all good that's you, then pray just silently right where you're sitting, whether you're online or you're here in the room, just silently talk to God from your heart to his and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back. I, I trust that you are good and I will follow you from this moment forward. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the dead for me. And in this moment, I accept. And I commit my life to you. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed for just a moment, if that was your prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help with the moments that follow. If you just prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment as a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made and know that as a church, we do love you and we want to help. And our family tradition around here is as you put your hands down, we put our hands together and tell you, welcome home.